Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. We're reviewing a case of a 22-year-old woman with painful menses. For those of you following along in the book, This is case 42 in the Beyond the Pearls Obstetrics and Gynecology, and we are on page 292. This case was written by Nita Desai, MD, MBA, and she is at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, St. Joseph's Hospital and Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. So let's go to our patient. She's a 22-year-old woman who presents to your office with painful menses. She experienced menarche at age 12, and her menses became painful by age 15. Menses occur at 28 to 30-day intervals, and bleeding lasts from 4 to 6 days with moderate flow. Her pain begins 2 to 3 days before the onset of bleeding and tapers in intensity once she starts bleeding. Her pain is localized to the central aspect of the lower abdomen, radiates to her low back, and is described as, quote, crazy intense cramping by the patient. It's associated with bloating and loose bowel movements. The pain is minimally improved with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and a heating pad and is aggravated by wearing tight clothing. In the past, her pain has caused her to miss her college classes, and she's concerned this may affect her new job or worse, her ability to have children in the future. She's been sexually active for the past two years with a male partner and notes occasionally painful intercourse. So what's your differential diagnosis for this particular patient? Although there are a plethora of causes for painful menses, when evaluating a patient with chronic cyclic pain, chronic pain is defined as lasting six months or greater, The most likely culprits are adenomyosis, which is endometrial tissue that grows into the uterine wall, dysmenorrhea, endometriosis, endometrial tissue that grows anywhere outside of the confines of the uterine lining, and chronic pelvic inflammatory disease, or PID. When chronic pelvic pain consistently peaks prior to the onset of menstrual bleeding, such as in this patient, endometriosis should be high in the differential. Endometriosis chronic PID adenomyosis, which is a subgroup of endometriosis, where the endometriosis is in the uterine lining, and dysmenorrhea, just pain with menses, can all include intense cramping, usually beginning two to three days before the onset of bleeding. Generalized abdominal pain and bloating are possible, and it can be associated with fatigue, nausea, vomiting, and bowel movement or urinary changes. So a clinical pearl. Most patients with endometriosis have pain that peaks prior to the onset of menstrual bleeding and lessens as the bleeding begins. Dysuria and or dyskesia, so pain with urination or pain with defecation, are also typically associated with endometriosis. Uh, Dysmenorrhea or chronic pelvic infection aren't as commonly associated with dysuria or dyskesia. 
A thorough history regarding the exact time of onset of pain and associated factors can help to narrow the diagnosis. A pain and menstrual diary also can be helpful in illuminating the history. So what factors of the history can differentiate these three diagnoses? Typically, adenomyosis will present as intense cramping associated with the onset of menstrual bleeding in conjunction with a heavy bleeding pattern. Physical examination can include an enlarged, tender, boggy uterus. Dysmenorrhea presents as a recurrent, crampy, suprapubic pain, the onset or just prior to menstrual bleeding. Other symptoms like radiating pain or nausea or fatigue can be present, but the physical examination's findings will typically be normal. Endometriosis patients have cyclic, although sometimes non-cyclic, pelvic pain with menstrual bleeding. These patients can have associated dyspareunia, pain with sex, dyskesia, pain with bowel movements, and infertility issues. Physical exam can range from normal to findings of minimal mobility of the uterus from scar tissue formation. You can feel adnexal masses, and you might even have what's called uterosacral nodularity. Remember, the uterosacral ligaments are those ligaments that go from the sacrum to the posterior cervix. So nodularity can happen from endometrial uh, implants and scarring. Chronic PID typically presents as lower abdominal pain in a sexually active patient and pelvic exam findings of cervical motion tenderness or pelvic organ tenderness can increase your suspicion for chronic PID as well. So a clinical pearl, acute pelvic inflammatory disease, PID, includes an oral temperature greater than 83.3 Celsius or 101 Fahrenheit and abnormal cervical or vaginal mucopurulent discharge. Chronic PID is less consistent because it can present without any vital sign changes and cervical cultures can even be negative. So let's go back to our patient. On physical exam, the patient has normal vital signs and a soft, non-tender abdomen. On speculum exam, there's no discharge or vaginal lesions. And by manual, while her uterus and ovaries are freely mobile, they're also moderately tender to palpation. Additionally, you note a fullness in that left adnexal region. So what types of laboratory testing or imaging studies would be useful for this patient? As with most patients, the clinical picture can guide subsequent testing. Adenomyosis can often be confirmed on ultrasound imaging, but endometriosis is less consistently seen with ultrasound. While magnetic resonant imaging, or MRI, can further delineate a globular uterine wall or adnexal masses, it's expensive and it's not confirmatory for endometriosis. Patients with dysmenorrhea, endometriosis, and chronic POD can have all normal ultrasound and laboratory results. Again, they can have normal imaging. So you should only get imaging if you feel it's going to clarify the clinical picture and confirm adnexal masses or delineate the the masses characteristics. For patients in whom chronic PID is highly suspected, vaginal or cervical culture should still be performed to confirm bacterial origin and to direct antibiotic therapy. So a clinical pearl. The CA125, which is a laboratory marker elevated in epithelial ovarian cancer and used to monitor therapy in epithelial ovarian cancer, can interestingly also be elevated in a plethora of benign or non-cancerous conditions, including the endometriosis, liver cirrhosis, acute peritonitis, acute pancreatitis, acute PID, the first trimester of pregnancy, and sometimes in healthy individuals without a cause. So keep in mind that CA125 is very nonspecific in premenopausal women especially, and if you've got other inflammatory disorders of the peritoneal or pelvic cavity. So we go back to our patient. We choose to do a transvaginal ultrasound on her because we felt this fullness in the left adnexa, and we think it might help to delineate our picture. 
It reveals a six centimeter smooth anaverted uterus. The right ovary is three centimeters and appears normal, but the left ovary is about six centimeter in size and contains a four centimeter cyst. The cyst is described by the ultrasound as hypoechoic, meaning blacker or darker and the echogenicity pattern. And it has diffuse, homogenous, low-level internal echoes. So how do you next counsel your patient? The description of this cyst is characteristic of an endometrioma. The fluid inside the cyst on transvaginal ultrasound is consistent with what's described as chocolate fluid, the results of degradation of the internal blood products within the cyst wall over time. On ultrasound, it kind of looks like static on a TV. It's what's called heterogeneous homogenicity. So it's homogenous, meaning the static looks the same centimeter to centimeter, but it's heterogeneous, meaning it has this sort of grainy appearance. So given the patient's clinical picture and the appearance of this adnexal mass, it's likely this patient has endometriosis because we have characteristics consistent with an endometrioma, a cyst formed by endometriosis. However, Definitive diagnosis of endometriosis is only confirmed by histopathology, so you have to do surgical exploration to be uh, considered diagnostic as well as therapeutic. So there's a picture here in our book version that actually shows the results of an endometrioma. It's figure 42.1 for those of you that are looking at it. It's an excellent display of that homogenous low-level echoes within that smooth curving cyst wall. Also, endometriomas are often adnexal in location, meaning they're on fallopian tubes or ovaries. So it will be adjacent and separate from the uterus. A basic science pearl. Microscopically, endometriotic implants consist of endometrial glands and stroma with or without hemosiderin-laden macrophages. If you ever get a question that talks about hemosiderin-laden macrophages, that's definitely considering endometriosis. So clinical pearl. Many other imaging appearances of endometriosis have been described. Those can include anechoic cysts, so black, solid-appearing masses, solid elements within a cyst with low-level internal echoes, and punctate echogenic foci in the wall of the cyst. These can be commonly from calcification within the cyst. The most common misdiagnoses of endometriomas by sinography are hemorrhagic or dermoid cysts. So hemorrhagic or dermoid cysts can imitate endometriomas and vice versa. What's the next step in management for this patient? At this point in time, the patient should be counseled regarding treatment options. Those include both medical and surgical choices. Conservative therapies for endometriosis include the suppression of the menstrual cycle, specifically suppressing ovulation. And you can do this through the use of oral contraceptive pills, OCPs, depomedroxyprogesterone acetate, or DMPA, or deparoluprolide, and also can be suppressed through intrauterine devices that contain progestins. All these medications can improve symptoms and prevent future disease by interrupting the menstrual cycles, and they will not cure or reverse current lesions, such as large endometriomas, unfortunately. And patients in whom conservative therapies have failed for symptom management or who desire pregnancy, surgery should be offered. So going back to our patient, we decide that we'd like to try DMPA in conversation with the patient because she's desperate for her pain and menstruation to stop. She has one injection of DMPA and repeats it three months later. Six months after starting this therapy, she comes to your office discouraged. She still has this intermittent, crampy pelvic pain that occurs three days per month, and she's very bothered by the irregular spotting caused by her DMPA, a common side effect of this medication. She's now engaged to be married and wants to think about starting a family in the future. 
She asks if she can explore surgical therapy. A repeat transvaginal ultrasound shows her former ovarian cyst is unchanged in appearance. So what surgical options should you discuss with her? Surgery for endometriosis can be divided into two categories, quote, cleanup or, quote, take out. Most endometriosis will show improvement of pain with fulguration or excisions of endometriosis lesions, including endometriomas. In those patients that have completed childbearing, definitive treatment is in the form of a hysterectomy with or without bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. Surgery can be performed via minimally invasive techniques like laparoscopic or robotic-assisted laparoscopy, and laparotomy being more invasive is not recommended unless it's required because of limitations of the surgeon equipment or the patient's condition. Minimally invasive techniques have faster recovery and less pain. The patient should be counseled about the risks of surgery, particularly as patients with endometriosis can have intra-abdominal lesions that increase the risk of bleeding, organ injury, or longer or more complicated surgery. Keep in mind that inflammation from the bleeding within the pelvis can cause a lot of adhesions within the pelvis or abdominal cavity. That's what makes the surgery so challenging. Patients should also be counseled about the fact that endometriosis can recur after surgical treatment and be offered options to prevent endometriosis lesions forming after any planned surgery. So in the book here, we have laparoscopic views of endometriosis lesions on the pelvic peritoneum. So there's examples of a red round vascular lesion. These are referred to as a vesicular type, sort of like a red dot or red splotch on the peritoneum. And the right panel shows this powder burn lesion type, very classic for endometriosis. It literally looks like you took a marshmallow and toasted it. Um, So it has this sort of like powder, irregular, uh, gray appearance surrounded by a little halo of white. So the patient elects to proceed with some surgical treatment. She undergoes a laparoscopic lysis of adhesions and a left ovarian cystectomy. Pathology of peritoneal biopsies in the pouch of Douglas, meaning that peritoneal pouch posterior to the uterus, cervix, and posterior vagina, is consistent with endometriosis. The pathology of the ovarian cyst is fortunately benign and consists of an endometrioma. Postoperatively, the patient is started on something to prevent endometriosis recurrence. Four months postoperatively, patient's pain and dyspareunia have completely resolved. So the long-term follow-up for this patient... In general, provided there are no contraindications, the patient can use OCPs or some other sort of menses control or ovulation control until she's ready to conceive. Ideally, all medical options should be exhausted prior to considering primary or repeat surgery, unless there's a clinical indication to do so. Endometriosis is primarily a disease of reproductive age women, so as the patient ages or goes into menopause, pain is less likely to be due to endometriosis. So you put it lower on your deferential for those people that are approaching menopause or in menopause. So let's go beyond the pearls. Epidemiologic reports estimate that about 176 million women are affected with endometriosis worldwide. That's one in 10 women in the United States. These are extremely prevalent problems. Early diagnosis and intervention are absolutely key in the prevention of severe disease, and they can lead to less severe pain and less loss of fertility. So while imaging can be helpful in endometriosis, it's not required for a diagnosis and therefore should only be used where it's going to change management or rule out important dangerous things. Most patients have improvement in pain with fulguration of endometriosis lesions, meaning applying heat or laser to them. 
but excision should be considered in patients in whom fulguration had not previously been successful in symptom management or in patients with what we call deep infiltrating endometriosis, DIE. The delimitation of DIE is made in the operating room by the surgeon. Exhaustion of medical options is absolutely preferable prior to surgical intervention. However, evidence demonstrates that patients see the most long-term relief when both modalities are used in conjunction with each other. So endometriosis excision in pairing with preventing new lesions from forming. Remember, medical management does not prevent old lesions from continuing, but it can prevent new ones from forming. So in case summary... This was a 22-year-old woman who presented to our office with a chronic cyclical pelvic pain since three years after menarche, age 15. She's suspected of having endometriosis based on the clinical history and physical exam. She had tender pelvic organs and ultrasound findings showed a four-centimeter ovarian cyst with low-level homogeneous internal echoes. The patient attempted DMPA therapy for six months but was not pleased with the outcome and wanted to explore surgical therapy for more definitive diagnosis and management. She underwent a laparoscopic left ovarian cystectomy and biopsies. Her pathology is consistent with endometriosis. Postoperatively, she used oral contraceptive pills for suppression, and her symptoms improved dramatically. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and you can find me on Twitter at Kate Merriweather One. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.